Ephesians 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. The word of the Lord, Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. So fix your eyes on Jesus. How can this be wrong to fix your eyes on Jesus? Now, you might be thinking he's a little off his rocker to say that. Um, but here's one way he's wrong. If you treat Jesus as a consumer product, I like to follow Jesus because he makes me feel a certain way. And so I'll accept this part of Jesus but I won't accept this part because I don't like that part of Jesus. Likewise, it's not good to treat Jesus as an outfit that you put on for certain occasions. Uh, so I will fix my eyes on Jesus at church and with, with these group of people, but in this situation or in this setting, it just doesn't fit my style to fix my eyes on Jesus. Jesus is not an outfit that we take on and off. He is not just a consumer product. Jesus he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus affects all of life. All of life. And so this evening, uh, look at words of Jesus and we're going to look at three passages about Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Yes? Yes. Okay. I'll be too far away, but it's fine. It's fine. This is actually a hazing ritual. That's good. Right here? Now, the I cannot move around, correct? It's fine. So Jesus is our Savior, and he is also our example. We call this Christ-like living. And so this evening, we're going to look at some uh, teachings of Jesus uh, to guide us in living for Jesus in 2019. Now, if you take these words and isolate them on their own, they don't make complete sense. Well, let me say this. It doesn't make sense until you fix your eyes on Jesus. It doesn't make sense until you fix your eyes on Jesus. So we're going to look at some words of Jesus that involve love, joy, and peace. Actually, the three points are going to be joy, love, 
and then peace. Each point, I'm going to take a look at the uh, teaching of Jesus, then how uh, it can be illustrated through two stories, and then apply it to our lives. Now, the uh, picture I have is uh, a picture of the Mount of Beatitudes. And uh, the reason why I'm showing this is uh, the words I'm using from Jesus are on the Sermon on the Mount. My point isn't that this is exactly where the Sermon of the Mount was, but this is likely the setting. So don't think Rocky Mountains, don't think uh, Appalachia. Uh, This is more of, you know, Sermon on the Hill in our minds. Um, And you see the Sea of Galilee there uh, in the background. So uh, let's begin. Uh, Oh, one more important thing. I almost forgot this in my transition. Um, At the end of each point, I'm going to say, it doesn't make sense until, and then I will invite you to liturgically respond by saying, you fix your eyes on Jesus. I'll say, it doesn't make sense until you fix your eyes on Jesus. Excellent. So first, joy. We all want more joy. And then what does Jesus do? He throws a curveball, and he says, joy in persecution. Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, in this passage, who is being persecuted? Obviously, it is the disciples of Jesus. And interestingly, Jesus begins this little section with, blessed are those, third person. And then he changes and makes it more personal with the second person, blessed are you. Now, what is happening? Obviously, persecution. And uh, verse, uh, verses 11 and 12 um, add to the idea of persecution by saying, insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. So the persecution is not only physical, it is also verbal as well. Now, why is the persecution happening? Jesus says, because of me, because you are following Jesus, you are a disciple of Jesus. In the Beatitude in verse 10, it says, because of righteousness, or put another way, because of Jesus' standard of what is right. And all through history, Jesus' standard of what is right often can come in conflict with what the world standard says what is right. Currently in our culture, not in the culture in Jesus' day, but currently in our culture, increasingly people are saying the standard of what is right is what I feel is what, what I feel is right. I am the basis of truth for what is right. And this often can come in conflict with Jesus' standard for what is right. Jesus' standard is something we submit to, 
not something we create, which is increasingly happening in our culture, and this can cause a conflict and can cause persecution physically. Uh, Very often we see this verbally in our culture as well. Now, why should we rejoice at persecution? The reason is not for the persecution itself. The reason is because persecution purifies our perspective of eternity. For the text says, great is your reward in heaven. So often you and I are caught in the here and now. This is, this is human. We do this. And the hardship can kind of wake us up, say, wait a minute, there, there is so much more to the kingdom of God, and there is eternity. Great is your reward in heaven. Now, to illustrate this, I'd like to use two stories uh, from the New Testament, one from the book of Acts. Um, the setting is the apostles have been dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council. They called the apostles in and had them flogged, which probably means they were whipped 39 times. Then they were ordered, then they ordered the apostles not to speak in the name of Jesus, which is kind of funny telling Peter and John you can't talk about Jesus anymore. Like, right, yeah. So they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That is the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name. And then from Philippians chapter 1, the apostle Paul says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Paul is in a place of persecution in his life. He writes the book of Philippians with a theme of joy. He says, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. The most important thing is that Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. So how do you, how do we, apply this to our lives? I'd like you to think about the important things that are in your life. And we have a lot of important things that are very good in our life. How would God want us to order and prioritize the important things in our life. And when we are pressed from the outside, because we are disciples of Jesus, it it tests us and it purifies our perspective in terms of what is most important about the kingdom of God and what is most important about living for Jesus and also having a view of eternity. Within this application point, I'd like to also just bring in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 says to rejoice in trials or hardships, which would be a much more general term than specifically persecution. And, And why rejoice? Not because of the hardship itself, but because through the hardship, 
We learn Christian character and perseverance, and our faith is deepened. And so while we do not run towards pain, when there is pain in the journey that God has called us on, we see that we can find joy. Now for some, this does not sound like it makes sense. And in fact, to have joy in persecution, it doesn't make sense until you fix your eyes on Jesus. Joy in persecution. Secondly, love. Wonderful, everybody wants more love. And then Jesus, once again, throws us a curveball. Love your enemies. Really? Matthew 5, you have heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what, what reward will you get? We're not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, are not... Are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. As we look at this passage, Jesus begins with, you have heard it said. In the Sermon on the Mount, this is the sixth time that he has said that. But interestingly, on this time, Jesus is not directly quoting the Old Testament. Now, of course, the Old Testament says, love your neighbor. But nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, hate your enemy. Now, it is thought that because in the Old Testament, God's kingdom was a nation, and that nation did fight against the enemies around them, that people reasoned and inferred, oh, yes, in the time of Jesus' day, yes, oh, we should love our neighbor and hate our enemies. Well, Jesus said, no. You are to love your enemies. We have something here in this text called common grace. That God allows people, no matter what, to, to, in a sense, farm and to create food for their families, for people to work and have an income, for people to think and to create. And this is people across uh, the face of this earth. And so we need to acknowledge that people are valuable and Jesus calls us to love them. And if we love a person that is not loving us back, that makes us different. That's not ordinary. And we begin to be salt and light for Jesus in this world. Now, when I teach uh, eighth grade Bible, And uh, I see a few people here that had me for 8th grade Bible. Warms my heart. Well, in 8th grade Bible, something I did a long time ago, and I still do today, when we go over the book of Acts, at the beginning of each class, I read a story from the book Jesus Freaks, which is from the voice of the martyrs, and it is stories of Christian persecution. Uh, Now, the Voice of the Martyrs was started by Richard Wormbrand, who was a Romanian pastor 
post-World War II when Romania um, fell under communism. And uh, he did not back down. He was a bold witness for Jesus in that country and subsequently got arrested. Um, here's just a snippet of his life when he, got, uh, when he was put in jail. After years of solitary confinement, which was torture in and of itself, we were put together in huge cells with 200 to 300 prisoners in each cell. I will not tell you the whole truth because you could not bear it. Then the times of brainwashing came, 17 hours a day, day after day. Additionally, they used red-hot iron pokers on us. And then the miracle happened. When it was at its worst, when we were tortured as never before, we began to love, to deeply love those who tortured us. Just as a flower, when you bruise it under your foot, rewards you with its perfume, the more we were mocked and tortured, the more we pitied and loved our torturers. This is not natural, but this is the work of the love of God in his heart. And it just spilled out with love toward his enemies. Last year in chapel, we had a speaker who is currently a pastor in the Chicago area. This man grew up as a Muslim in Lebanon and hated Christians. In fact, one of his goals when he grew up was to literally kill at least one or more Christians. Well, in the journey of his life, at one point, he came upon a Bible. He started reading the words of Jesus, and then he stopped at a teaching of Jesus, and he could not believe it. The words he read were, love your enemies. And it was so out of the box, so strange, that he just meditated on those words. And God used those words to put him on a different course in life to eventually where he committed his life to Jesus Christ. And it all began with reading the Bible and love your enemies. So how can you and I apply this to our life? First, I'd like you to think. I'm going to ask you three questions. First, who doesn't like you? It's rhetorical. We're not having a share time. Who doesn't like you? Second, who do you not like? And third, related to the second, who rubs you the wrong way? Who gets under your skin, can frustrate you, can annoy you? Now, if Jesus says love your enemies, obviously it also means love those who annoy you. And so what are you going to do to put this teaching into action? Now, obviously, you should not be artificially nice and run up to the person that annoys you and give them a big hug and kiss. That would just be creepy and it would not work. But what could you do to show love? 
Obviously, it depends on the relationship and the context. But one very common way to show simple kindness and to reach out is even if you do not feel like it, you pray for that person and then you engage them in conversation. You are the person to take the first step at being kind and showing that you're concerned about this person's life through engaging them in conversation. Loving enemies, loving people that rub us the wrong way can, can be very difficult. And you know what? It doesn't make sense until you fix your eyes on Jesus. And then last, peace, peace. Now in this uh, teaching of Jesus, the word peace doesn't occur, but we're going to look at forgiveness and if we truly forgive, we are opening, up, opening our hearts to allow God's peace to come into our lives. From Matthew 6, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, if you think about that, that's a, that's a, hard, a hard saying. Now, obviously, it refers back to the Lord's Prayer directly preceding this text, and specifically verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Debt equals sin. So forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, what does this passage mean? Now, it is not teaching a strict chronology. It's not, okay, today somebody offends you, you forgive them, God forgives you. You know, the next day you don't forgive the person, so God doesn't forgive you. The next day you forgive, God forgives, and, and, and so on. The, the point here is that if you don't forgive other people, you really don't understand amazing grace. You don't understand the expansiveness of God's forgiveness. A good way to look at the interpretation of these verses is to look at a parable that Jesus told. And Matthew records it in Matthew chapter 18. It is the parable of the unmerciful servant. I will paraphrase it for modern times. There once was a banker who loaned a man $500,000 to buy a house. This man, unfortunately, lost his job and stopped making payments. Well, according to the contract, the mortgage, if payments were not made after a certain amount of time, the bank could legally take the house back. And so the banker called this man into his office and he said, you haven't made payments, the house is now ours. The man said, let me tell you my story. I know I haven't made payments, it is my fault, but I lost my job and I have desperately been looking for another job. And just yesterday, I found another job. I start in two weeks and when I start working, I promise I will pay back the debt. And my family, my wife and my children, we, we need this house, please help me. Well, the banker says, I'll talk to the president of the bank, and he goes and talks. The banker comes back, and he says, 
you're not going to believe this, but we decided that the bank will pay off your mortgage. You own this house free and clear. Merry Christmas. So this man, of course, is overjoyed at this unexpected generosity. He goes home and tells his wife and children, and they're all excited. Now, it just so happened that a month previous to this, this man had sold his car to a young woman, but she could not pay for the whole car up front, and so he agreed to finance a small loan of $5,000 for this woman. Uh, but this woman ran into some unexpected medical expenses and could not pay the man her payment, and so she stopped. So he called her to his house, and he said, what is this? You have not paid me for the car. And according to the contract that you signed, the car reverts back to me. It's mine. I'm taking it. She said, let me explain. I ran into medical expenses, um, but I'm, I'm over the hump now. Uh, I have a job, and I promise I will pay the loan back. And in fact, if I don't have this car, there's no other way for me to get to my job. Please. And the guy says, sorry, I'm taking the car back. Now, anybody, and anybody listening to that story would say, that guy, he is a snake. Give me a break. He gets a house for free, and then he just is so unmerciful to that woman. Give me a break. And then God says to us, if we don't forgive others, we do not truly understand the beauty and the glory of God's grace given us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Two stories. 2015, church shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, where Dylan Roof stormed into a Bible study and killed nine people. At the sentencing, Felicia Sanders, the mother of one of the victims that was killed, said to Dylan, I forgive you. May God have mercy on your soul. More recently, Larry Nasser was sent to jail over many criminal charges against the USA women's gymnastics team. The first woman to bring charges against him, the woman you could say with the greatest courage because she is the one that stepped forward first, her name was Rachel Denhollander. She said this at the trial. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Forgiveness can be extremely difficult for us. But it is what God calls us to do. I don't want to sugarcoat this point. Um, I know there are people 
that have been deeply injured and damaged by others. And it's something that just is a just affects them through all of life. But God calls us to pray out to him, to say, Lord, help me to forgive. On my own, I can't. Nobody could on our own. It is too difficult. That person doesn't deserve it at all. And yet we are called, Lord, help me. Help me to forgive. Help me to release the bitterness and the grudge. Help me to let go. And when we do, we open up the possibility of peace in the relationship with that person. And we also open up our heart to receive God's healing peace within us at that place of hurt. When people hurt us, in one sense, they don't deserve forgiveness. However, it doesn't make sense until you fix your eyes on Jesus. My friends, in this 2019, I encourage you like I encourage myself towards Christ-like living to honor our Lord Jesus Christ and honor the grace that he has so freely lavished upon us. And one of the ways in which we do that is simply when we experience hardship, we look to Jesus and receive this miracle gift of joy. We seek to be salt and light in this world by loving our enemies and loving those who are difficult to love. And we also seek to bear the image of Christ by extending grace to others. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, in your greatness and in your power, we are thankful, we are eternally thankful for your daily mercy and grace in our lives. And we simply pray, O oh Lord, for the power of your spirit to work within us so that we might live a more faithful life, a Christ-like life, day in and day out in 2019. It is in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.